Okay, so we started a new series two weeks ago where we watched a movie called, that is based on the book The Silver Chair. You know who wrote that book? Mm -hmm. Who? C.S. Lewis. Alright, written by C.S. Lewis. And <clears throat> why do you think we are reading a fantasy book for a Bible class study? Because it's um, based, because the whole series is based on Okay. Yep, that's true. It is, um, do you know what it's called when a story has a hidden meaning, meaning to it? You may have heard it. It's an allegory. And that's what C.S. Lewis did. And like you said, it is about Jesus. Um, and <clears throat> he was a Christian himself, and he wasn't just a Christian, but he was also a Christian thinker, somebody who studied the Bible, and he also studied a lot how God makes himself known to us. So <clears throat> one quote that, a thing that C.S. Lewis famously wrote, was he said there is only one good and that good is God everything else is good when it looks to him and it's bad when it turns away from him so every in C.S. Lewis's mind everything in the world that's good points to God and he takes this concept and when he writes a children's story that's really for adults too he puts God in it and around every turn, every page that you flip in the book, you can, almost every page, you can pick out something that is about the Christian life or about God or about Jesus. And you're good. the key, though, is, or, is that you're going to miss God being in it unless you have the key to understanding the allegory. Um, do you know what that key is? Because this is part of right, the Narnia series. And what is Narnia? Or in the books, what is Narnia? Yeah, it's another world, it's another land, right? It has, they have maps, they have places in it. But can you get to the world of Narnia anytime you want? Mm -hmm. How do you get there? When Aslan chooses to bring you there. Oh, yes, very good. When Aslan chooses to bring you, okay? Um, Narnia, it the same is an allegory for the spiritual world. So anytime the children are in Narnia, they are in the spirit, they are growing in their spiritual life. And we're going to point this out, these things that out as we go through this book and that's the main lens if you think about it you got to put on the glasses of seeing Narnia as the spiritual world and that's how you're going to understand how it's an allegory about God and about growing in the Christian faith so um, that being said what did you guys talk about last week in the first few chapters
let's start with who are our, our main characters that we have met so far in the Silver Chair. Okay, we haven't met Puddleglum yet. We watched him in the movie, but in talking about it, we haven't. So, yes, we have Jill and Eustace. I think that's right. Um, have you met either of them before if you read other books or watched other movies? Um, Eustace. Yes, Eustace has been to Narnia once before, right? And this is Jill's first time in Narnia. Um, <clears throat> what does Jill say about Eustace before they even get into Narnia? What does she notice about him? That he's changed. Yes, Eustace has changed since the last school year. And they, they go to a school where they live at the school. It's called a boarding school. And so they don't see each other all summer because they're back home. They live all different places across England. And then they're brought back to school in the fall to start up. So she hasn't seen him all summer. And apparently Eustace was kind of a jerk before. And now he's not, doesn't seem to be quite as bad. Um, Now, how do they get into Narnia? Um, they ask him, sort of, and then... Who's him? Aslan. Okay. And then they just, they're running away from some bullies, and they open the gate, and inside was Narnia. Okay, yep. Um, now, remember that, because we're going to come back to that. And when they first get into Narnia, what happens? Um, they find themselves in the forest. Yep. Something terrible happens, right? What happens? Yes, and Eustace falls off. Why does he fall? Because he was trying to help Jill get back. She wouldn't let him. Okay. Why do you think, and was what Jill was doing, was it smart or wise? No. No, right. It was dangerous. And why do you think Jill was acting like that? Okay, yep, and she does, she even says that later when Aslan asks her, she says she's showing off. Um, you'll see as we look at Jill's character that she's a little bit naive. Do you know what naive means? It means you don't have experience or you're not very wise. Right, and that's and if you think about it, Eustace, who had, he has been to Narnia, he has gained some wisdom by being in the spiritual world, and Jill has not. She's never been there. She is also um, she has a hard time putting herself in other people's shoes, and she's um, she's what you might call myopic. Myopic means that to only look at one thing at a time. She has a hard time at seeing the whole picture. So, um, after Eustace falls and then Jill is by herself, she cries for a while and then she um, wanders off and she gets thirsty and she comes to a stream and, but why doesn't she want to drink from the stream? Because the lion is on the same side as her. Okay, and what's she afraid of? Right, naturally, right? Because she's never been there. Um,
But then the lion does what? Yes, firstly, he talks. She wasn't ready for that, right? And he tells her that you, to go ahead and drink. And, but she still doesn't want to. She wants him to go away. And then she says, well, maybe there's another stream that I can go to. And what she doesn't want to have to deal with the lion to have a drink. What does the stream represent? remember talking about the stream last week? So the stream is that what you don't know yet is that they are actually not in Narnia yet. Right. Do you know where they are? They're on the mountain in Aslan. Yeah, they're in Aslan's country. Okay. So this stream uh, belongs to Aslan, and it is, you will see later, it's going to play an important role at the end of the story. If you've, I know you've read it or watched it before, so you remember that there's a part there. But this is a life-giving force, and there is no other one. The only way that you can get goodness and life and blessings is from Aslan. Okay, so she doesn't want, she wants to have that stuff without having to go through Aslan or without having to go through Jesus. And we see a lot of people in our world like that, that they want good things, they want God's blessing, but they don't want to have to listen to him or obey him or follow him. They want all the good stuff without the hard aspects. So after she finally uh, decides to drink, and she says, what's, do you remember what she says about the water? Um, it was the most refreshing she's ever tasted. Yep, the best she's ever had. Um, what does Aslan tell her after that? He gives her something. Not physical. It's more of a task. Yep. So the whole purpose of them being here is they are going on, you could call it a mission or a task. He has brought them there for a reason. And there are four things that they have to do, right? Or that they are not that they have to do, but they're looking for. Do you remember what any of those were? Mm -hmm. Okay, old friend. We're not going to write out the whole one, but just for short. You remember the second one? Um, then they must go to the north and find the moon city of the ancient giants. Yep. Yes, I think, hold on, I want to make sure I got this right. Yes, yep, you're correct. And they're supposed to do what they're asked to, right? In Aslan's name. Okay, so, and Jill's attitude after he tells her that is like, Okay, thank you very much. I'll be going. And he, what, what's the problem with that? What does Aslan say? Um, 
What's he want her to do with those four signs? He wants her to memorize them, right? And he makes her stay there. And I don't know, maybe you guys didn't talk about, get quite to that yet, but he want, he has her stand there and say them over and over until she says them perfectly and can say them on her own. And uh, did you guys talk about what the signs mean? What's their hidden meaning for them, the allegory? Okay, um, so these signs, they represent, um, represent God's word and you saying them and memorizing them is just like you need to understand and know about God. It's about spending time with him in prayer and understanding that way when you are going through life that you can recognize what he wants you to do. And we'll get more into that as we see the signs pop up. Um, so Jill then asks a very interesting question. And I'm going to read to you from the silver chair. This is We're still in chapter 2 towards the end. Um, and he, she's still there with Aslan and okay. Jill says, this is before she receives the sign. She says, please, what tasks are talking to Aslan? The task for which I called you and him here out of your own world. This puzzled Jill very much. It's mistaking me for someone else, she thought. She didn't care to tell the lion this, though she felt things would get into a dreadful muddle unless she did. Speak your thought, human child, said the lion. I was wondering, I mean, could there be some mistake? Because nobody called me and Scrub, you know. It was we who asked to come here. Scrub said we were to call to, to uh, somebody... It was a name I wouldn't know, and perhaps the somebody would let us in. And we did, and then we found the door open. You would not have called to me unless I had been calling to you, said the lion. Then you are the somebody, sir, said Jill. I am. Okay. So you remember when... Jill and Eustace are there back in school and they're saying Aslan's name over and over. Mm -hmm. And they think that they were the ones who brought them on their own accord into Aslan's country. And Aslan says, no, no, you would not have been able to do that unless I was already calling you first. And this is an important thing for us to remember that God is always in control and that we are the ones who are bending to his will. He doesn't do what we say. Instead, we follow after him. And we're going to um, see that repeated throughout the silver chair. <clears throat> and we'll get to a little bit of that in a second, but I want to stay with this. And... This is now we're going to continue on to do uh, some into some new parts tonight of over the next couple chapters. And Aslan then sends her on his breath, which is kind of a weird thing, right? That Aslan just breathes out of his mouth and then suddenly she's floating through the air. Now, do you remember how Aslan in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, if you've watched the movie or read the book, how does he awaken the people who were turned to stone? He breathes on them. He breathes on them. So we don't have Aslan up here yet. 
trying to figure out what does his breath represent. Um, let me ask you another one. What happens when he roars? Think of all the different um, books and instances throughout Narnia. What's his roar represent? He roars at the white witch. He roars um, when he enters battle. He lets out a roar when he creates Narnia in The Magician's Nephew. Think of how people react when he roars. People are scared, okay. Why are you afraid of something? Because you're uncomfortable with it. Okay, that could be. Why, but why would you be afraid of, instead of a lion, let's say, why would you be afraid of a tiger? Because it could eat you. Okay, he has more power than you have, right? He's stronger. So his roar is power. So these are all things coming out of his mouth. So power. And then with um, breathing on the stone and bringing them back to life, his breath is life. Um, I had another one here. Let's see. Do you remember when Aslan, I think this is in the, in Prince Caspian, that book, when he breathes on Lucy's face? Yeah. And she says that it feels warm and that somehow everything felt better and that she had courage to go do something. Okay. That's, that's also another type of power, but his breath also oftentimes brings comfort. Okay. So I want you to think about what in the spiritual world, the Christian spiritual world, what does wind represent? Our last Bible study series. This was part of our, was one of our main topics. Talked about fire and water and wind and that they all represent a person. They represent the Holy Spirit. So Aslan's breath is him enacting and like God's spirit going out and having effect on things in the world where it's powerful, it brings life. Just like when you're saved, you all have this Holy Spirit come into you and that it is a comfort to you as well. So... She, by that power, she floats through the air and she eventually arrives across the sea in Narnia, just how uh, Eustace also arrived that way. And when she arrives, she meets Scrub, as that she calls him, on the bank of a river and talks to him um, immediately about the first sign and takes him to task and says, quick, you got to find... Somebody that you recognize. There's got to be somebody here and you got to talk to him. And what's his, Eustace's attitude about the instructions? 
How would you describe his emotion? A little angry, maybe grumpy. Yeah. Seems a little grumpy. Um, why do you think he's grumpy? Because Jill was out. Yeah, she almost killed him, right? And he says that. He said, you almost murdered me. And now the question, you, then you have to think, well, should he have been so short with her? No. Probably not, right? He, even though... he. We can admit that we might have felt the exact same way. Now, here's an interesting thing. Because do you remember what Eustace used to be like? Like in the book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. How was he? How would you describe him to somebody? Oh, um, he was, um, oh, he was, was it encourageable? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, he's also very selfish, right? Yeah. He, uh, tries to take extra water ration for himself, right? And, but why did he change? Because we know that he changed because he's different now. What happened? Who did he meet? Aslan. He met Aslan. So who has just met Aslan for the first time? Jill. Jill did. Okay. Do you think Jill has changed? Yeah, a little bit. A little bit, right? She's, she's on the right track, right? She wasn't, she didn't reject Aslan. She's listened to him. And, um... She's changed ever so slightly because she met Aslan, because she drank of that water. And now, does that mean that she's perfect? Does it mean that all her corners are rounded off and she's nice to people and treats them perfect? No. Okay. And that's true with us when we're saved. It doesn't mean that everything is fixed with us, but it puts you on a path to continue to allow God to change you. So it's interesting because Eustace has been changed and now Jill is going to go through that, but in a very, very different way. Eustace's change was sudden, right? And he went through something really intense. What was that? He became a dragon. He became a dragon and then he had to become undragoned, as he says, and actually have Aslan tear, tear his scales off of him with his claws, right? And the journey's not the same for everybody. Um, now, what's going to be difficult for Jill is that she already has, she started off on a bad foot, right? That everything is going to be affected for the rest of the journey by what Jill did in the beginning. That seemed not like a big deal, just uh, carelessly... Um, acting so then it put scrub in danger but she now has a reputation to change and once a christian it can be hard to change a reputation that you once had so while they are talking about the signs the king leaves on a ship they had been watching him he gets on a ship and the ship leaves and the moment that happens an owl called glimfeather he comes and meets them and tells them who the king is. Who is the king? Caspian. Caspian. And for those who have read it, the books before, you recognize who that is. And Eustace, it's very his very good friend. He spent his entire time, last time in Narnia with, excuse me, Prince Caspian. And now he, they have missed the first sign. I'm going to read again, this time out of chapter 3, um, a short section here. And this is Jill speaking to Eustace again. The king was an old friend of yours, said Jill. A horrid thought struck her. 
I should jolly well think he was, said Scrub miserably. About as good a friend as a chap could have. At last time, he was only a few years older than me, and to see that old man with a white beard, and to remember Caspian as he was, the morning we captured the Lone Islands, or in the fight with the sea serpent. Oh, it's frightful. It's worse than coming back and finding him dead. Oh, shut up, said Jill impatiently. It's far worse than you think. We've muffed the first sign. Of course, Scrub didn't understand this at all. Then Jill told him about her conversation with Aslan and the four signs and the task of finding the lost prince, which had been laid upon them. So now you see, she wound up, you did see an old friend, just as Aslan said, and you ought to have gone and spoke to him at once. And now you haven't, and everything is going wrong from the very beginning. But how was I supposed to know, said Scrub? If you'd only listened to me when I tried to tell you, we'd be all right. Yes, and if you hadn't played the fool on the edge of that cliff and jolly nearly murdered me, all right, I said murder. And I'll say it again as often as I like, so keep your hair on. We've, we'd have come together and both known what to do. So, there are Eustace, after um, explaining his time in Narnia, what do you notice about Narnia time? It's been a long time. Okay, it's been much longer because Eustace, it's only been a year. less than a year because it happened in the summer and this is the fall semester for him. So it's been a few months. How much time has passed in Narnia? Um, I think it said in the book it's like 70 years. Yeah, a long time. So this brings us back to the spiritual world here. That time is different. Okay, for both in Narnia and in the spiritual world. Now why would I say that time is different or you could even say it doesn't matter in our spiritual world? Do spirits live in time and space? No, right? It's they exist within another dimension. They do have a, have a part in this world, but they are not tied to it. They're not bound to it. They, aren't, they don't age here. Now, you can be, this is the interesting thing about how Narnia explains this, or uses it as a picture, that you can be spiritually mature, but young physically. And you see that that the um, four Pevensey children in the line, the witch, and the wardrobe, they spend all that time in Narnia. They become kings and queens, and they live well into their 30s before they come back to the real world. And then it's like no time has passed at all. But yet, they have all this wisdom and maturity that they have gained while in Narnia. And for that's us, that's like growing you spiritually that it isn't tied to how old you are physically. There are people who are very old in our world that are not very mature spiritually. They're not strong in their spiritual life. And you can see, find it vice versa. So there are going to be a few themes um, in this book, back to Eustace and Jill with their mission and their task, which they've already, as they said, they kind of messed it up. And one of those themes in the, or here, there's three that I want to point out. One is that they are looking 
last plan. Um, one is that they are waiting. For God's plan. And another is that they are acting on God's plan. I'm going to say acting in, actually. And I want to look up a couple verses here. Um, Natalia, can you look up Romans 8, 28? If you want to go ahead and read that when you find it. Okay, so that verse is talking about God's plan that no matter what happens in your life, no matter how hard things are or arbitrary and random things seem, God is using them for a purpose for those who love him and follow him. Okay, so that's looking for God's plan that you can be looking for things and how they fit into it. Um, I'm going to read 2 Peter 3.8 for you now. Mm, oh, sorry, 3.8. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, or be, uh, be pitiful and be courteous. Okay. So this one is, has to do with waiting for God's plan. That if you are, you're going to see that already that Eustace and Jill are fighting with each other. Right? They are not on the same team. Instead, they are always looking how to point out each other's flaws and instead of loving one another and being on the same team and working together well, that if you are not doing that, following what God is doing, then you are not, you are going to miss out on things. And you're going to see that that's going to be a struggle for them on this journey. <clears throat> And now I'm going to read for you Hebrews 12, verse 14. Oh, here we go. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Oh, I think I flipped two of those. Anyways, um, so this one also applies for the waiting that if you are not at peace with all and um, following God's laws, that would be looking, keeping an eye out for the signs, spending time with God, that you're going to miss out on things. Um, and then the last one is Galatians 6, 9 that I'll read for you. And let us not be weary in doing well, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. So, 
and with after all that waiting and looking that there's going to be a come a time when it's time to reap that is to harvest and that is going to be acting in God's plan that when it's the right time you have to act when that time comes so these are going to be some of these things they are going to struggle with a lot on their journey um the last thing that we're going to look at tonight we're going to look at chapter three in the silver chair and this chapter is called the parliament of owls did you know that that is the official term for a group of owls yeah. do you, have you heard of other terms like that like what do you call a um a group of crows have you ever heard that one called a murder of crows there's a bunch of crows together there's other ones like that there are kind of fun terms like that so this is um, about what happens is that the owls Glimfrether he comes and taps on each Eustace and Jill's window in the night in the castle and him and another owl pick them up and carry them all the way to this little meeting spot that they have in a tower where all the owls have gathered together in Narnia to talk about how they're going to help Jill and Eustace on their journey. Um, how come they're doing it in quiet? Do you remember? Right, and it's not because Trumpkin's a bad guy, but because um, because all, all the friends Narnians who went to find the lost prince never came back. Right, he doesn't want to lose anybody else, any other good heroes, and so the king has commanded not to come, and Trumpkin's going to follow whatever. Caspian says no matter what and since Caspian's not there to change his mind they've decided they've got to kind of do this in secret because the owls are wise enough to recognize that Aslan has sent them and they have to follow Aslan above anyone else okay um, so while they're in this meeting because they don't really know why Prince Rillian is missing, right? All they know is he's gone. Nobody's told him. It's kind of a, we don't talk about that kind of a thing. And this one owl tells them the story about it. Do you have any ideas about what meanings are hidden in this story about Prince Rillian and his mother? and how he came to disappear. This has a lot of uh, meaning behind it, this section here, that really sets the stage for the rest of the book besides the meeting with Aslan. So, Rillian's mother, they are out, um, they call it their maying, or they're out there having a picnic in the spring and his mother dies tragically. Do you remember how she dies? Because she was sleeping and so they ran a little away from her so she could sleep. But then a snake, a serpent came and stung her. Yes. Okay, she's bit by a snake and then the snake disappears. Okay. Um, and this causes what kind of reaction from everybody in the kingdom? Sad. They're very sad, okay? They're, and especially for R Prince Rillian, to him there is no, um, there's no solution for what happened. There's no closure. He's left hopeless. There are no answers, right? Because they are unable to find the snake, unable to know why that kind of thing happened. He is left very empty inside. He feels empty. And 
he takes on searching every day. He is trying to, going out there looking for the snake that killed his mother, and he's trying to fill the hole, trying to solve a problem by going out there. And soon something seems off, like he's not really searching for her when he's out there riding. And because Drinian says, hmm, the horse doesn't seem tired when he comes back. Doesn't seem like he's been out there all day riding. It looks like he's just gone out there and hasn't gone too far, spent a long time out there and then comes back. So Drinian, who is um, one of Caspian's closest advisors, asks Rillian what's going on. Hey, I noticed it doesn't seem like you're searching anymore. And Rillian says, oh, well, that's because I've met somebody out there. And Rillian wisely says, well, could I meet her? And Rillian says, of course. And the next time he goes out, Rillian rides out and to the place where his mother died. And there, Drinian and Rillian see this lady. Now, as soon as you saw the lady in the movie or the first time you read the book or whatever it might be, what did you think? Okay, yep. What else did you think? Did you think maybe she was the snake? Yeah. It's, you could draw that conclusion, right, pretty quickly, because she wears green also, right? Green like the snake. And, but either way, you think... That person doesn't seem like a good person, right? And so what do you think the lady represents in this book? Yes, very good. So who also took the form of a serpent, right? When does he do that? When does Satan become a snake? Right, right. So let me ask you this. What is Satan's goal? What's his, what is he always focused on? What does he want to do? To sort of like take over. Yes, okay. If you're thinking about in terms of you and what does Satan want to do with you? Yep, he does. And he wants to eventually to cause your downfall. He wants to, if he can, he would like to kill you. To kill either physically or spiritually to have you to be dead. To cut you off from God. And you already mentioned how he does that is he likes to tempt, right? He is very good and can play a very long game. Do you know what it means to play a long game? Yes. Means to be very patient, right? That you plan long and ahead. You're willing to, Satan's willing to allow you to Think that nothing's wrong, not a big deal, little mistakes along the way, all leading up to something big at the end. And the lady, the green lady that Rillian has met does this same thing, where she does not just kill Rillian, instead she uses his mother's death to weaken him and attacks him when he's depressed and when he's feeling down and she swoops in and gains his trust when he's not on the lookout for danger. Do you remember in the Pilgrim's Progress, when does Apollyon attack Christian? 
Apollyon, the big, the, um, the guy that he has a battle with when he's wearing the armor. Oh. You remember where Apollyon attacks um, Christian? Wasn't it after the Palace Beautiful? It is, yep. In the series, he has a different name. Oh, okay. He goes down into, Christian goes down into a valley, right? Right. Do you remember the name of that valley? Humiliation. Yes, he goes down into, and it's after the Hill Difficulty. Then he goes down into the Valley of Humiliation, and Apollyon doesn't let up on him, or Satan doesn't really, because he has other people in that valley until after the Valley of the Shadow of Death. Do you see some ties there where they're, they have just gone through this death. They are down and they're depressed. They're feeling low. They're feeling weak. And that's when Satan attacks. But the interesting thing is when Christian gets to the other side of the valley, that he turns and looks back. Do you remember what he says? He says that the road didn't look as bad and he realized that many of the things that he thought were scary or um, dangerous in the daylight didn't look so bad. That they weren't as bad as he thought. And that's often true in our lives that we, we make things, drum them up to be something bigger in our mind than they are. And Rillian is not so lucky. He succumbs and is lost. And what he filled his void in his heart with has now taken him captive and he can't escape. And really he has become addicted to something. This is something that has taken hold of him. And you can be addicted to all kinds of things. You could be addicted to alcohol. You could be addicted to video games. You could be addicted to um, exercise. You could be addicted to um, a hobby that you have. There's all sorts of things that you can that can consume you totally, and that's what has happened to Rillian. Now. It's going to be a long time before we discuss much more about this, but this is part of the theme of the book that's going to pop up again at the end, and we'll go even more into in-depth about that aspect of it. So that's where we leave off for tonight, is that they finish discussing um, with the owls of what they should do next, and they are going to take them to meet our next character, Puddleglum, who's going to join them on their adventure. All right. Thank you very much.